Well, here we are, everyone. We're back again. Life in the Peloton is back. And I've got a special guest this week. I've got a new co-host dropping in for Lionel. We've got Richard Moore, who is on the Cycling Podcast. He's part of the crew and he's come across to help me intro this episode today. Rich, welcome to the Life in the Peloton. What an honor it is, Mitch. It's great to be here with you. Great, mate. I'm happy to have you on board. Almost, I was saying before, I almost called you uh, Roger Moore, which I think is not a bad person to get confused with, if you're, especially if you're a Bond fan, and I am. I'll take that. I'll <laughs> take that. Yeah, I mean, I need something to big me up because I'm obviously filling Lionel's shoes here, uh, big shoes to fill, but it's his birthday this week, so... As you can imagine with Lionel, you know, it's a whole whole week of celebrations. So uh, so here I am. I was a bit disappointed when you introduced me as co-host. I thought I thought I was on Life in the Pelt and I thought I thought I was being interviewed. Oh, oh. This, this is my moment. <laughs> we can. Well, let's just drop into it. Let's just do an extended <laughs> intro. This can be like a 45 minute intro if we like. No, no, no. You've got a much better guest. We do today. have a really good guest. So we'll get straight into it. I've got Paul DeGator coming up, guys. Now, he is, in my opinion, the man when it comes to cycling agents. He was the first, if not the first, the first or the second guy around to create this job in cycling. And I came in touch with him early in my career. Robbie McEwen put me in touch with him. And I always had a great feeling from him. He's just got a great rapport and he looked after me really well throughout the first part of my career. And I was thinking about this idea, which, which rider manager could I get in this time? It's a very tricky time. I thought, hang on, Paul's retired. He would probably like to talk about it and he's not going to you know step on anyone's toes so that's what I've done I called him up I had a great chat got Paul coming up guys so sit back and enjoy this one Mitch before we go to Paul can I ask you a quick question now a couple of episodes ago you uh you know you were sort of looking ahead to to, to the races and, and realizing that you, um, you know, you really had to buckle down. And the following day you had your, your weigh-in. Um, and so I tuned in last episode to find out what the results of that had been, um, but you didn't tell us. I wonder if that was deliberate. <laughs> how did the weigh-in go and how is that, that, that sort of battle for fitness going? It's funny because what I did was every Sunday, I don't know if I explain this, every Sunday I put the, it's half a kilo a week, put the, put the date, put the new date, uh, the new weight every Sunday and it's, you, when you start training, you initially lose all that fluid and, you know, all that beer sort of sweats out and you have a nice little period of, I weighed in well, I, I hit the, the goal the next Sunday and then the, the following Sunday was pretty good. But then all of a sudden, as you get tighter, the body sort of, well, this is my theory, it hangs on to fluid and all of a sudden you start climbing again and you're like, uh-oh. So you start training harder and you start to have to lock it down even harder. But as the weeks go, I've sort of flowed up and down. But each Sunday, I've ticked it off. I've I've got another one coming this Sunday. And as you get further down the weight, it gets harder and harder. So I'm in the final, I call this phase two now. Phase one was before I went away. I'm up in the mountains now training. Now I'm up in the mountains. This is phase two and phase three is going to be the racing. So that's just around the corner. Think things are on track at this moment. I've had to drop the beers out a little bit more than I would have liked, but things are on track. I'm relieved to hear that, Mitch, because I, I was I was slightly suspicious to not hear the results <laughs> of that weigh-in. Uh, so I'm, I'm relieved that you're on track. That's great news because the, the Tour of Poland is on your schedule, isn't it? And it's not too far away now. Tour of Poland is the first race I'll do. It's about a month out now. So I've got a little bit of time on my sleeve and uh, a few cheat days left. So I'm going to enjoy those ones. But the rest of the time is... Head down, bum up.
Well, here we are at Life in the Peloton, and we're talking with my old rider manager, my old manager, Paul DeGator. My, my ex. ex. Exactly. It's just... <laughs> It's great to touch base again, and it was great great to hear your voice when I called you about this because, you know, we used to speak at length about different things and a little bit about riders and contracts, but mostly about beer and and records and things like that. So, it was great having a chat to you um, a couple of days or yesterday, organising this podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, great, mate. Welcome. Let's get into it then because there's quite a little bit here I didn't know about you, but there's more importantly, there's quite a lot about what you do or what you used to do that I do want to know about and I'm sure everyone out there in in the cycling world is also wondering. Let's just go right back to the beginning because in the beginning as I see it and you can correct me if I'm wrong along here, you were if not the first, one of the first guys to create this job in cycling, a rider manager, someone to represent the riders. So just run me through back in the day, how did this all come about? How did you come to this job? I had a tax consultancy firm in Luxembourg and when I stopped those activities uh, and when I was doing that, I was tax consultant for a lot of sports people, mainly soccer players. I at the time was even the president of the only recognized association of football agents, uh, the only recognized by the FIFA, uh, although I didn't know very much about soccer. So I sold that company in Luxembourg and I came back to, to Belgium and I wanted to go into a representation of sports people. And we started with soccer because there were a lot of agents doing soccer. And I thought, well, I try cycling. The only thing there was nobody doing that job. So you really had to explain to people from scratch what an agent was doing and why you thought it would be okay for him to pay you a commission on his next contract, which in the beginning was a bit surprising from the side of the cyclists, but also from the side of the teams who weren't that happy to see a guy coming up and say, oh, no, no, you need a written contract before you're going to start riding for you. It was a bit strange days in the beginning, yeah. So from what I understand, one of the first riders you represented was Frank Vanderbroek. And in the time, in the 90s, he was the man in Belgium, if not in the world of cycling. And I get the feeling that if you started with him, what were the teams like? Did you have to earn their trust? And how was that first sort of period? And how did you even approach Frank to sort of go, hey, you need a cycling manager? Or did he come to you? Frank was was the only cyclist that I helped uh, for his tax uh, matters while being in Luxembourg. So I knew him. So uh, by, by the guy who handled his bank affairs. So I started with Three riders basically were Bobby Julik, Mario Arts, and Frank van den Broek. By having those riders, also Bobby did a quite a good job. He was uh, third in the Tour de France the, the year uh, that I started to work for him. By having a, a rider of that quality, like especially like Frank, mm. teams contact you. Yeah. And that's a big luxury. If I would have started off with smaller, so to say, riders, then you really have to push a lot harder. But in the beginning, I remember like Johan Brunel asking me for dinner and just wanting to know what I was going to do. Patrick Lefebvre was a big help. Uh, I also had a dinner with him explaining what I wanted to do. And some of the, I would say, smarter team managers understood that you could help them getting the rider more focused on cycling and so being a better rider. And especially the, the, the smarter team managers understood that quite quickly. The smaller ones, they were really against. Mm. Some, some of them really against it. So, uh, yeah. so why cycling? Why did you not go down that path of soccer or football, as you say? We, we were in Belgium. 
And the, the main idea was that I was going to go into entertainment. And I was, doing, I was going to do a little bit sport on the side. And there was cycling and some, we had an athlete and we had a motorcycle uh, cyclist. Uh, and to do that. But unfortunately or fortunately, the cycling became bigger, bigger and bigger. But it was certainly not my intention from the start to do only as a core business cycling. It was the idea to do entertainment and then have some small things on the side. But it, it went quite well. And that's what, but together with soccer, it's the main sport in Belgium. So th- th- that's the reason why. All right. Well, let, let me get to the juicy stuff. How does it all work? You know, how does it actually happen? How, when do the negotiations start? And you know, do you go and just say you're working, well, we, you and I work together. Let's use me as an example. Let, when, when does it all start? How do we go? Where do we go to the teams? Just run me through how your thought process works in a, in a yearly sort of process. The first thing is that when I started to do this, I said you have to do it as a real business. Not something that, that uh, you do a little bit. Where you go for it, you go for it all the way. And so you start working for a rider basically down under now, since there is tour down under. And you start talking to teams and you don't, you don't want to sell any rider at that time. You just want to know what their position is going to be for next season. So mainly the conversations are not at a, a table, around the table, but are in a bar of a hotel. You're having a beer or you have a glass of wine and you say concerning next year, what are the options? What are you guys going to do? And you start to feel what's going to happen, what's happening in the peloton. You feel which teams are going to need what kind of riders. It's really important. I often say you don't, the negotiations is the very last piece, the very last uh, phase in the whole process. And basically there are three main waves, I would say. You have the, the, the classics, around the classics. That's when you try to, to place your classic riders and already start to position the other riders. Domestics have to wait as the last ones. A team first wants to know who, what riders are gonna have the main spots on the team. And then they build downwards. Yeah, yeah. So you have the classics, which is an important moment because classic riders can show themselves and you should be signing off already some part of your classic riders. Then comes the Tour de France, which is the main market. And then you have the third wave, which is after, I would say, starting August, September, October. And by then it's, it's uh, as the French say, sauf qui peut. It's really trying to, to save whatever you can save. Well, run, let, run me through, because as I understand it, and you, you spoke a little bit about the Tour de France there, a lot of the bigger sort of meetings or the, the more concrete meetings happen at the, the first rest day or the second rest day of the Tour de France. What are these conversations sort of like? If you can sort of give me a, an example conversation. A lot of the work is done beforehand. So when you have those meetings in the Tour de France or you have them, often it was in in Maastricht because then it was a bit in the middle of the classics you already have a good idea of what they want and you have also a good idea of the riders that they don't know they want but you want them to want and of course we always try it uh, and and I'm sure Dries is doing the same we always try to push every rider on every team at least talk about them and see what happens but of course some riders you know you're never going to get them on quick step 
even if you talk about them 15 times. So you don't have to waste your meeting also hours and hours talking about a rider that you feel from the beginning that they're not interested and you're not interested. So you focus on the ones they want and then you focus on the one that you want to push there. And, and then it, 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 it depends also a little bit on, on things that you prepare. Paired. The, the ones they want, the main thing is if there are other teams interested in the same rider, to put them all on the same, same time schedule. Because you don't want a proposal too quickly and then have, to, have them to wait for a month to say yes or no. You don't want that because you know there is another team that's interested. So you have to look for excuses to postpone your decision or even postpone a firm proposal or cut the proposal in, in a fixed salary. And we're going to talk about the bonuses later on. So you, you win time because you know that in a week or two te- weeks time, you're going to see that other team or those other teams from whom you also want a proposal. So you can start what we called the auction. And the auction is when you put teams against each other. But you always have to do it in a gentle way. Because another secret is you never tell a team, we want to come because you pay the most. No, no. You only want because they're such a good team and everybody wants to be on their team. I always smile when, when team managers tell me, you know, it's in- incredible. So many, so many riders, they, they come to us and say they really want to be on our team. Of course. If they're smart, they say they want to go on a team. Nobody goes to a team and says, listen, I don't like your team. I think you're an asshole. But if you pay me enough, I'm willing to come. Nobody does that. The money is the least of your concern. In the meeting. So to speak. Yeah, that's right. In the meeting. Exactly. So exactly. When, you do, when you're doing all these little tactics on the side to pro- prolong them sort of, you know, another month here or they're trying to prolong you, what are the unspoken sort of rules there in negotiating or in this period? Is there a set of actual UCI rules and is there also a bit of unspoken rules between managers and rider managers that you guys sort of, yes, they're not exactly rules, but it's a little bit like general courtesy. What, what's the sort of feel there? But, well, there, basically, for me, there, there are two things. First of all, nobody respects the UCI rules. I mean, you just start talking and you, if you can close a deal, whether it's the team, whether it's the rider or the agent, you close the deal. There are some, some deadlines or some moments you're not allowed to do. Nobody respects that. Negotiations take place the whole year round. Because the official rules are supposedly after, what is it, August 1? Yeah, Something August like 1, or I don't know what it is right now. And then that before, you were not allowed to start negotiations before. Because, and in a, in a way, it makes sense. You don't want to have two riders uh, or one rider who is not attacking another one because he's going to his team next year. So you, you want to avoid things. That, but basically, nobody respects that. In my, in my uh, experience, there, is, there was only one rule. When you made a deal, by handshake or by telephone, you respected that deal. That's the only thing. As long as you didn't have the deal, you were free to do whatever you want. But you should not come up with, with oh, it's not on paper yet or it's not signed yet. That's bullshit. Once you said, okay, we have a deal, deal is done, then the deal is done. That's the only, the, the only rule. How strong is your word in that situation? Did you ever see that get crossed? Um, no, I had one situation where a rider, uh, after we made a deal, decided to go to audit another team. And I said that that was his choice, but then I stopped working for him. Because also my word is worth nothing anymore. If I'm in, in the peloton, when I was in the peloton and I said something 
riot, team managers believed me. And that's, a ver that's another very strong argument. I never, uh, sometimes team managers told me, I, I just made like, like 500,000, I could have made 500,000 euro, uh, euro today because they asked for a million and after 15 minutes we're, we were already on half a million. I never did that. I evaluated the market and with the experience we're able to do that. You add 15, 20, 25%, something like that, but you never double. And, and then they know that you mean serious business. When I said I have a proposal from another team and I said I have a proposal for that kind of money, they knew there was a big chance that I had a proposal around that figure. Of course, you add a 10 or 15% indeed. Another, another, another golden rule is never ever mention to a team which other team is interested. Because some, some, some team managers, they come and they say, oh, I have this great proposal. And I heard these stories. I have this great proposal from Quickstep. And they said it, let's say, to, to I don't know what team. And then, the, the, you know, the peloton is a village. There is a big chance that this guy will call Patrick Lefebvre and ask him, do you made a proposal for this, this guy? And then Patrick didn't make a proposal or made a proposal, but sometimes didn't make a proposal. And your whole strategy falls apart. So never, ever say they're not capable of calling all the teams to see if there is a problem. Did you learn this from mistakes or you realize this just without making that mistake? Mistakes? Mitch, we're not going to talk about our <laughs> case the whole time, I hope. <laughs> uh, no, I think, I, I think the, the most important, as I said, I was not the, the, the bluff agent. Uh, I was very cautious because I, I realized that you're playing, so to speak, with the future of people the income of people. So I was very cautious, but you learn some things you, you, you should understand. Like you should understand that when I was, I was, as you remember, I was maybe 200 days in the peloton. You talk with a lot of people and then you see that everybody talks with everybody. And you sometimes are really surprised about the connections within the peloton. Who have worked with whom? You would be surprised. And there can be two team managers now. There were two directeurs sportifs 10 years before or teammates even you know or teammates so so, so you or, or one helped the other winning a race or other, you, you, you don't you don't know so you have to be careful shoot uh, shoot that area du plateau cycling podcast team car the back of the pack please well we're interrupting this episode of life in the peloton briefly to tell you that it is sponsored by Babel, the language learning app and uh, i've dragged lionel bernie away from his uh, week-long birthday celebrations to uh, tell us a bit about Babbel. He and I have both been using it. We've been babbling away, haven't we, Lionel? Um, I've been learning French. Uh, you've been learning Italian. Come stai, Lionel. That, that means how are you? I know that. That's, uh, that's uh, very good. Very good. Have you also been learning Italian? To be honest, I was hoping you were going to be wishing me Bon Anniversaire in French or Buon Compliano in Italian. Happy birthday. But nothing. Absolutely nothing from you. No. <laughs> no. No. Nothing. No. <laughs> Not in any, not in any language, <laughs> Lionel. How's it been going though? Because I signed up for daily fifteen-minute lessons, thinking that was that was realistic. I did miss one day, I must confess, but um, that's also Italian, isn't it? I must confess, if you listen to our other podcast. Um, but uh, I've been really enjoying it because that is achievable. Um, you can always find fifteen minutes, and lessons themselves are really quite fun. You know, you, you use your phone in a in a you know you use the 
the, the voice recognition facility, um, you have to type words, it involves listening, it involves all the aspects of learning a, a new language. Um, and it's very interactive and I've been quite enjoying it. It's certainly it. a habit that gets formed quite quickly. And I set a little reminder just to, you know, I don't often do it at the time that it reminds me to do it, but I get a little reminder in the morning and it just mental note to, to do my 15 minute lesson at some point during the day. And you mentioned the, 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 the voice recognition. I've been finding, I mean, I am I have a not Watford accent, as you know, Richard, uh, not, not one of the world's most lovely accents, but it's forcing me to really work quite hard to pronounce things in a in a properly Italian way. And uh, it just makes me think of what our colleague on the cycling podcast, Daniel Freib, says about learning a language. There is a sense of sort of performance to it, isn't there? Um, you feel like you are uh, shedding your, in my case, English-Irish skin and, and trying to sound authentically Italian. So I've quite enjoyed the fact that it doesn't just um, take as read what you've just said. It, it pushes you to pronounce the, the words as authentically as you possibly can. Well, the lessons on Babbel are created by over 100 language experts, real people, not robots. Um, and there are 14 different languages available, including Spanish, French, Italian and German. Uh, there's a special offer for listeners to this podcast. Um, they're offering six months free with a purchase of a six month subscription with the promo code CYCLE. C-Y-C-L-E. I'm sure I don't need to spell it out. Go to babble.co.uk forward slash play and use the promo code cycle and that gets you a free six month subscription if you do sign up to a six month subscription. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot co dot UK slash play promo code cycle. You're not from cycling. Obviously, you're a Belgian, so you understand cycling better than a normal person who was never a cyclist. But did that take you a while to learn cycling? Because, for instance, even explaining a different rider and how they are, if you've never been a rider, it might be hard to grasp exactly how you're selling that rider as a classics rider just from watching it from the TV. How did you learn all those intricacies of presenting a rider? Well, I, I think, don't forget, when you when you start, when you talk to a team manager about a rider, it's not so much the, the, the cyclist uh, potential you're selling. It's more, it can be character, it can be, but not so much. You don't have to explain if he's a sprinter or if he's a classic rider or it's, that's something there. What you have to explain sometimes is that you say, listen, he would love to be a classic rider. He cannot do it on the team he's currently on. But I know and I feel like he has the potential to do that because see what he did there or did there, those things. But, but everybody knows a bit everything about the riders. Well, the level of riders I worked for were not unknown. So it's not like I had to explain the, the qualities. An another, another good tip as an agent is you never go and beg for a place on a, on a team. Even the, the rider with the worst year that means that this team has a great opportunity to get a rider on board for less money than he's worth. So you say, and that is a bit about cycling, then you say, listen, this guy is, is in a really bad, bad moment right now, but you guys are so smart. You're the best team in working with riders. On your team, you're gonna change 10,000 euro in 50,000 euro. 
if you work with him for one winter. So those things you say concerning cycling, but on the pure quality of a rider, it's, 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 it's a bit common knowledge. So going, going back to that meeting, and you, you were talking about like sometimes you know, your word and, and speaking to these, these different managers, who were the tricky managers? I mean, you have to name names, but were there tricky ones? And did you feel intimidated sometimes coming into meetings where you're like, this is going well, to be I've, yeah, I've, a hard meeting? I, for me, really important was, uh, no, I have no problem in difficult managers. I, with Bjorn Rees, it, it took maybe three years before we get further than hello and the list of my riders. And afterwards, I really appreciated him because he's a really nice guy, but he's a bit more reserved or, or whatever. If there was one, and I'm not afraid of calling him, Bob Stapleton was really an asshole, so to speak. Patrick Lefebvre is one of the best negotiators in the peloton, but it doesn't have to be unpleasant. You defend your case, he defends his case, I defend my case. That's one thing. Some of those were really, really like Bob Saber was really unpleasant guy to negotiate with. So for me, the main thing is if it was Marc Madiot, for instance, I had meetings with him. There were 10 minutes when we really discussed riders, really to, to the point, really to, on the riders. I had no problem with that. And with some, you had to talk half an hour about their family and their kids and their, and that's also, that's part of the job. So that's not a problem. Were there any real stressful moments that stick out in your mind when, you know, when you're close to closing a deal and the deal fell through and it was a rider you really wanted to get on, or was a rider whose career was ending and you thought, I just can't get him a deal? I remember really stalking uh, Bjorn Rees. Uh, so Bobby Julik did his last year with um, T-Mobile and I couldn't find him a team. Couldn't find him a team. I don't know why, but it was, was impossible. And sometimes it's sometimes also a question of luck. Sometimes it's a question of luck of getting on a team. Sometimes you feel those closing, mm. doors closing. And I had one, one tiny, tiny opportunity, and that was CSC. And I really, at the Worlds, we're already at the Worlds, <laughs> I really stalked him. I, I, I think I slept in, uh, at his door of, of his hotel room. As soon as he walked out, he saw me. And, and I remember I was at his breakfast. I was when he, <laughs> I really stalked him as much as he could. And finally, he took Bobby, who next year then won Paris-Nice. And what is fantastic is that I think it was one of the first guys he called to and said, thank you, because if you wouldn't have been that persistent, I would not be racing anymore. And then he did a fantastic year with CSC. So, so that was quite kind of stressful. But the, the, the problem is, and it's a bit like I said before, because you realize you're working with the income of people. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes really stressful at the end of the season. It sounds like to me that was almost like the most satisfying moment in your, I'm sure there's a hundred of them, but in those moments when you really get pushed to the wire and then ultimately you get him on the team, but not only that, he was able to come back and sort of repay the work like you said. He was like, hey, this is everything I was trying to say to you. He proves that. Is that, is that one of the most sort of satisfying moments when of that course, happens? It's, 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 it's an amazing moment. But, but the thing is, you know, people know me or know me for working for Van Petegem or, or, or uh, Vandenbroek or Tom Boonen or Michael Matthews or, or Mitch Docker or guys, stars like that. But sometimes 
be able to save the career, so to speak, of a smaller rider. Bobby wasn't a smaller rider, he was a big rider. But it gives you even more satisfaction than making 300,000 or half a million more on a Tom Bonus contract. But, but this being said, I always loved, and well, you know that, but I always loved the negotiations. That was the fun part. The, 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 the chess and the, the pushing off and then taking him back and, and, and making him understand that oh, it's going to be really difficult because I really would love to put him on your team. Can you not do an extra effort because the other guys offer so much money that it would be, you know, that kind of things. And that was, and, and especially, and that's sometimes also very stressful when the most stressful thing was when, when you had two proposals and the writer said, yeah, but I would love to go to a, that team which was one, not of those two. Then you really had to drag those two along and in, in the meantime, try to convince the team where he wanted to go to. And that, that was sometimes stressful because you don't want to lose an offer. Also a golden rule. That's right. You've got two pu- perfectly good offers there and he's like, I don't want either of them. I want something else. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, you're the boss. Let's go no, for it's, it. it. You're the boss yeah. and it's fine with, fine with me, but, but you're, you're afraid that you're not going to lose one of those two because, you know, teams, they, they fill in their team. And teams, they make decisions too. Huh? So that sometimes it's... it's but then, then working for Frank van der Boek, I had a lot of stressful moments, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and also those are sometimes the more satisfying moments uh, when you really handle a crisis and you handle it well. Well, with, which sometimes was the case with, with Frank and sometimes wasn't, but, but that was also rewarding. Mm. All right. Well, there's something I found really interesting about you is that actually you went over the other side of the fence. And in 2018, you were the, um, the team manager of Lotto Sadal. Finally, you've gone from a whole career of trying to get riders into teams and now suddenly you're on the other side of the fence, the flip side, and you're dealing with rider managers coming to you to get their riders into your team. What was that like? knowing the tricks of the trade and guys coming in trying to play these, not tricks, but, you know, use those methods you said on you. And you're like, hey, yeah, I wrote that book. <laughs> yeah, but in it basically, especially sitting in front of, 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 of Dries, who, oh, yeah. who learned, who learned the, the business from me. But, you know, when, when somebody says, hey, you're, you're a writer, but when, when you make a proposal, and somebody says, to, I'm sometimes surprised that, that you make a proposal and somebody says, yeah, you know, he wants to focus for a month now on his sport, on his racing. You know, it's not true. <laughs> no rider in my 20 years career, when they had a good proposal, but even in the middle of the Tour de France. Wouldn't sign. Yeah, of course. They study it and they make a decision and they sign. It's because you hope for something better. Yeah. But also as a team, you know that and you hope that this better proposal will not come or that they're going to take your proposal anyway. But I was not so good because I, I, I negotiated some really bad, but, but not the most generous contracts when I was on the other side. But was Maybe because I knew how Yeah, it, how that's it what I was about to say. Was it hard actually? And were you, was it very difficult then to sort of judge all these guys coming towards you? Um, no, no, it was not, it was not particularly hard, but, but, you know, you have a business and you have a loyalty to the team that you're working for at that time. But in a case like Tim Wellers, who are considered as one of my friends, um, yeah, it's, it's not easy because of course you want to give whatever they want. Mm. In a way, in a sense, it's not even your money mm. that you're giving away. That's true. But you have this responsibility and then you, you, you negotiate the contract you negotiate and you try to do it as correct as possible. Between teams, is there 
a little bit like in the NBA where another team might pay another team to secure a rider for the next season or is there any sort of inter-team negotiations as well or is it purely external, just the riders individually going around? Uh, no, it, it happens. I, it happened a couple of times. I moved uh, Stakemans from Katusha to to uh, US Postal and I was in, in the, that was kind of a solution. It's where you say, listen, we have a problem. Can we work this out uh, in, in some case? So sometimes you talked. I, I no, I, I placed from US Postal to Quickstep also. You know, the, those things happen that you talk with two teams and you try to organize something. Sometimes when a team tells you, listen, this is such a key rider for us, inform me whatever happens. So I don't want to hear that he's gone and, and not knowing it which for an agent is the best position because, you know, then you know that they're going to, if they really want it, they're going to even pay more than your best offer. Then it's no problem in, 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 in complying with their demand. But uh, that's things like that you, you take into consideration. If, if you have a team that has a good youth working, a youth uh, formation uh, thing, and um, they have a young rider and they want to keep him because it's important for their sponsor, you try to take that into consideration and you explain to the rider that that's the case and, and you try to financially get the best out of it, but you take that into consideration. Yes. Tell me about one thing that I sort of, I remember talking to you about it and, and my manager, your your ex-partner Dries now about, who is now my manager. Sometimes a, a situation comes up, it's like, look, we'd love to get you on that team. You fit the profile of that team. They're looking for a guy of your sort of rider, a support rider for the classics, whatever. But you're not Belgian, you're not French, you're not Italian, you're Australian. They're not looking for that. How does that sort of fit the dynamics? In, and you're trying to squeeze someone in there, but they're just looking for that. And then all of a sudden, the rider of that country comes along. You know it's a lesser rider to the one you're trying to sell them, but they fit the mold of the of the country or the sponsor. Is Does that sort of thing happen quite often? But nationality yeah. is a very big thing. Very big thing. And before Green Edge, for a lot of Australia, I worked, as you know, for Robbie. Uh, I think if, if there would have been a Green Edge at, at Robbie's time, he would have made a lot more money. Not that he did too bad, but it w- would have been a different situation. Because if there was a, a, a Belgian sprinter, 80% of what Robbie could do, they were willing to pay him 150% more. Or, or 50% more than what Robbie was making, for instance. Often, when I, would talk, when I talk to you about these talks down under at the beginning of the season, when you talk to teams, sometimes it's really like we need three riders from Poland, we need two French riders, we did this, we did it, based on nationality first. And then they looked on, on if it had to be a sprinter or if it had to be a domestic or if it had to... But nationality really, really matters. I worked... I was in contact at the time. It was a smaller Belgian team, uh, uh, Landau Credit, it was called. And I had one rider, very, really popular one, Popovic, who went to the Giro his first year and became second there. For them, it was like, it was a really small team having a rider being second in the Giro. And, and uh, Gerard, uh, I don't remember his name, the team manager came to me and said, they only talk about the Belgian that is ninth or tenth yeah. in this Giro. <laughs> Nobody talks about Popovic. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. And that is what, yeah, but you, know, you understand it's, it's it. It's very yeah. important for a sponsor. If, if 
the writer can express himself because that was one of the strong points, like in the case of Robbie, that he spoke fluently Flemish. But if he can express himself in the language of the customers, it's very different than somebody who's speaking in English or broken English. Mm. So it's, it's how can customers, what, what, who can customers relate to? That's important for a sponsor. Well, talk to me now about the end of guys' careers and retirement. And even though you know the riders are still just as good physically, there comes a point where teams, I get the feeling, judge the riders up and go, he's not as good anymore, but, you know, he's, he's 35 or whatever age. How do you sort of sell guys at the end of their season? Is it a reduced salary or you go with, the, you know, he's an experienced guy? What's the sort of tact you take to try and prolong guys' careers who you know, one, don't want to stop and two, physically are still going very good, but they've got this image? Yeah, well, exactly what you're saying. In some cases, you only sell the image. And that is, I don't want to refer to, to a writer in, 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 in spe- specifically, but, you know, at a certain point... For a smaller team to get a guy on board with a great image, even if he's not going to perform from a sports point of view that good anymore, can be really important. And we saw some some examples of that in in the past. But you have to be realistic. When you go to a team like Quickstep, you don't have to come with a rider based on, but he has a great image and he's a great star in cycling because they already have 10 great stars of cycling on the team. They need guys that perform and they can win. My experience is that that you also have to be really careful that you don't do that year too much, where you really damage the whole image of your career. And and sometimes it's a bit explaining to a rider that it's over and that, that, that's, that it's better that he stops. You know, <clears throat> in a career of a rider, you have moments, and you must experience that too, you have moments that it goes bad. You don't, you're not in a good shape, but that's no problem because you're, you're 28 and, and then a couple of months later you go back on, the, on your usual form and you perform better again. So that happens every, a couple of times in a career. But with an old rider, the problem often is it goes down. But as he remember from the past that it will go up again, he can't believe he won't go up again. And then he still believes that he can do something, but it's not possible anymore. But my experience, a lot of the riders... Physically, they could do more, but mentally, at a certain moment, it's over. Yeah, I believe that too, and I'm noticing that just with with my body, not on the mental side. Every time I think that my body might be getting older or finishing, I just keep doing something that surprises me, and I think, well, as you get older, you do physically get better, and it's just a it's a choice, not a choice, but once once you don't want it there anymore, that's a whole different game because you're cold and wet, you know, going up the Quaramont. If you don't want to be there. That's the worst place in the world. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But in Belgium, they sometimes say the day that you look at the weather and you, you say, well, it's, it's, it's too chilly or it's this, I'm not going to train today. That's, it. that's the day you should think about stopping. And that's what I mean, the mental part. Well, speaking of certainly strange times, now I want to try and get your opinion on what is going to happen in these current times because it's going to be very strange. Normally, the negotiations, like we said, they sort of start a little bit after the classics with the classics guys. The main guys get done in the Tour de France, and then the rest sort of get done afterwards. The Tour de France isn't happening now until more or less September. That means, you know, if you're doing a a contract in October, you're getting up the scraps or whatever. This year could be completely different. The main guys might be getting signed in October. How do you think this year, if you were still a manager now, how would you be feeling about 
the current situation. Is this actually a good situation for rider managers or is this the worst possible situation you could hope for? But it's not a good situation because I'm, I'm afraid if like CCC, they don't find a new sponsor, you know, the, the, the number of spots on the peloton are quite limited. And if you take like 30 spots away, then it, the, the pressure on the salaries become even bigger. I think basically the big stars, they're going to continue to make good money. That's not going to be the problem. I think on the domestic side, there, there's going to be more and more pressure on their salaries, in my opinion. But what also is something that, that where I'm curious about is you have riders that are really good at the beginning of the season, guys that are maybe better in the middle and guys that are really good by the end of the season. But the season starts by the end. So it could be that some guys that need a month or two, three to get in shape, you won't see them this, this year. This season. So in some cases, as I say, as a, it's difficult to make a general idea on what's going to happen on the individual uh, side. In some cases, I would be nervous thinking, well, he's never good at the end of the season or Wellis is going to ride the two, Tim Wellis is going to ride the Tour de France in September. Where in the past, he always struggled with the, the hot weather. It's not so good in, in hot weather. For him, that's maybe an incredible opportunity to win a stage. So I, I, I don't know if, if the, the races are going to be as they are, normally are. I was talking the other, well, we were talking the other day about Roubaix. It's going to be a totally different. We could really have some surprises of riders uh, winning uh, races this year, this this so to say, season. If I would be an agent now, I would already know exactly where the the weak points are, where, where the, the problems are, where the opportunities are. And I would try to, to place as quickly as possible my riders. I totally agree. And I've said this a few times. I think that this year is going to produce a whole range of different winners or guys who are getting good results. And personally, I see that as a really good big opportunity. If you can get your head around it, if you can somehow focus and be good at the end of the year when we're normally winding down, there's a big opportunity there because maybe, you know, 20, 30% of the riders are going to be out of it. So... I've just got a couple of last little questions for you. Tell me the worst part of the job. The waiting in the hotels. You know, uh, well, you, you remember when, when uh, well, we worked the day before a, a race and then we came and see you and uh, the other guys at the hotels. And often you come into a hotel, you call and you say, hey, Mitch, I'm here. And you say, I'm sorry, Paul, I'm just on the massage. So is it okay if in one hour? And I'm, not, I'm joking, it was yeah. not always you, but mostly it was you. No, no, no. <laughs> and uh, so the waiting in the hotels, that's the part I won't miss at all. And the best part. What do you look back and go, I love that? The negotiations. Yeah. And when you do a good deal, that's, that's I'm not going to say better than sex, but it's <laughs> uh, very, really close, really close. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah, when you walk out of that meeting and you say, yes, we nailed it, that's an incredible feeling. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Mate, well, great to chat to you today. Great to talk to you. And we'll have a beer. I'll come around at the races to have a beer. Well, you have a coffee, I'll have a beer. I look forward to it. Okay. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Well, there we have it. I thought that was pretty good. He's got a great charisma about him, Paul. And when he talks about that stuff, I really felt like we're getting the inside knowledge to what happens out there. Because even though I sort of thought I knew what happened, I had no idea. What's How are they doing that? How are they selling me? How's the negotiations going? And it's it was quite interesting to hear how it all went down. What do you think uh, there, Rich? Yeah, fascinating. I mean, 
as you mentioned, he was one of the first and, and there are more rider agent managers out there now and quite a few of them, or some of them have a, a lot of riders which must make things very complicated. But I was fascinated to hear about the process of, especially with a big rider who might you know, be interested in, in different teams and who have, might have different teams interested in him, how you line it all up, you know, how you don't end up in a situation where you're keeping one team hanging on for you know two weeks for an answer the, the 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 complexity of that i mean i would be terrible at this job that was really fascinating the the importance of directness and, and being straight as well was was interesting to hear that makes perfect sense of course but i guess the impression we have of agents is probably unfairly that they're not always straight and yet somebody who works in cycling where you know, the, the market's pretty small, that the cycling world is pretty small. If you're not straight, if you're not honest with people, um, I don't think you'd go very far in that job, would well, you? Well, that's what, I don't think so. And that's something that I think, whether it's true or not, but I believe, and this is Paul used to say this to me too when we were working together, that his word had weight and he didn't like to work with anyone who reflected or crossed his word in terms of riders, I mean. He wanted to work with riders that also respected what he said was going to happen. And that's something I really liked with him was when he said that the deal was done or he gave his word that I had the feeling most teams believed what he said. So I had that trust there with him and he gave that that feeling like it's not always true with a lot of with a lot of agents and they don't really care about that and they when, when what we say is you know to they win that battle but they lose the war and I feel like Paul was there for the war. He's like, "No, nah, that's my way I do it." And, you know, I thought it was going to be interesting to hear after that, when he was on the other side of the table, what that would have been like with these guys coming up and, tr- and trying those tricks on him when he was actually a team manager. So there was heaps of interesting stuff in there. And I was, I was really thankful that Paul was so open and, and honest about all that um, in that interview. Yeah, um, is, I mean, is your impression over the years that you've been a, a pro, have, have they become more influential, um, people like him? Are they pulling the strings a little bit more? I mean, we hear stories about, you know, one or two super agents. Giuseppe Aquadro is one uh, that springs to mind who looks after a lot of the South Americans and, you know, fell out with Movistar having had a lot of his riders on their roster. And that's really affected the the, the kinds of riders they can sign now. Has that been a, a trend that you've noticed in your career? One thing I'm noticing is that maybe it's because I'm becoming an older rider and you have a bit more of a connection with the team managers is that team managers prefer to talk to the riders, whether that's because they feel like they can maybe get a better deal talking to the rider or intimidate them more or whether they feel like there's a better connection talking to the rider. I hope the latter. Um, and I do like to do a little bit of in the negotiations that talking with the team manager myself, understand why they want me or why I want to go there. And then when it comes to the the paperwork and things like that, that's when I like to use my manager to make sure all that sort of stuff that I don't know about is correct. I don't necessarily like my manager just, okay, I'm just going to close my eyes and you do the rest. So I do feel that with younger guys now, with the the feel of there's so many managers out there. If you don't have a manager, you're never going to get a contract. I don't know if that's true, but that's the feeling I think a lot of these managers are portraying out there or even other riders are portraying to other riders that, oh, you don't have a manager? You're crazy? It's a scary thing and understanding how much you're worth and feeling like you're getting undersold or oversold. It's all this stuff and you only understand that 
as you get older and understand what your value is and you sort of work it out. I'm actually trying to get a team manager on the podcast in two weeks time to find out the other side of this and what it is like to build a team, to deal with these agents or to to negotiate sponsors and all this sort of extra thing. I'm, I'm just finding this topic so interesting at the moment. I guess we have an impression of, of writer, manager, agents coming into their own at contract time and, and that being their job to negotiate a contract. But how much contact do you have with them throughout the year? You know, even when a, a contract's freshly signed, is it a is that kind of weekly contact? Um, and is it more than just, uh, you know, the kind of, uh, the, the nitty gritty of the contract, but also do they do the good managers have a you know are they almost like counselors? Do they help writers as well? I'm I'm thinking especially in the last few months of of this great uncertainty, have managers been important? Do you think in helping writers through that? Personally, for me, not necessarily on the psychological side of things. I'm 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 not going to doubt that that could be an option with some managers if they have that connection with writers, but with with the company I work with. They've also got a lot of extra support, you know, whether that's helping you with just finding out insurances, especially me from Australia. It's difficult for me to have a, a good health insurance over here that covers me in all different countries while I'm racing. And that's all that stuff that, yeah, you can do it yourself, but you don't really know and through the fine print. So all that sort of stuff helping you get settled or even to the point of, you know, maybe looking at a, a rental contract on your on your house that's in another language the legal stuff that you can get help with. It's those extra things. And I, I get the feeling when you go back to, are you speaking to your manager every week or whatever, it's up to the individual. Some guys are, are very happy with the manager just literally doing the contract once a year. But some of the guys, I think a bit like myself, sort of you know prod and ask for a little extra things if they can help or just try and get the most help you can out of your manager or you know your agent or the, the company. So I think it's, it's a good situation if you want to make it a good situation if you sit back and just let it roll on that's also i think your choice a little bit as well that's interesting so there's a lot of practical things they can help you with as well i mean what it's, it's interesting you you mentioned he'd retired and i think that that was obvious from one or two of the things that he said that nobody follows the uci rules i mean we we know that but it's uh, it's rare for somebody to admit it out loud in public on a podcast but yeah i mean we know that, that you know deals are done negotiations are done uh, out, outside the the sort of officially permitted times which is you know I, I don't know if the uci will be listening and paying attention to that but uh, that was interesting i i was personally very interested to hear what he said about team managers and the ones he gets on with and doesn't get on with and he had some pretty harsh words for Bob Stapleton yeah he did and I was surprised he was quite honest about that um, but you look I think it's it's been a situation that you know probably was a bit personal he's like well that's just it's not on and um, from what I understand there's something similar to you that happened there as well with with Bob Stapleton what was the exact story there Rich <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I, 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 yeah, I mean, Bob Stapleton was the, the 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 guy who came in to to rescue T-Mobile when they had all their their doping problems around uh, and after Operation Puerto, he came in as the the kind of the, the broom to clean everything up. Um, then T-Mobile pulled out, and he he kept the team going as as High Road, and then HTC High Road, Columbia, HTC Columbia at one point, HTC High Road, uh, until the team folded at the end of. 2011 
And um, he was always a very kind of, very good with the media, very avuncular, charming, um, quite charismatic. But I did see another side to him on one occasion uh, towards the end of the team's existence. I remember it vividly on the Champs-Élysées at the end of the Tour de France in, in 2011. He, uh, he tore strips off me for a story that I'd written that he wasn't happy with. And he was not, he was not happy. And I really did see another side of him. I understood how he had, you know, he'd done so well in business because I think you need that ruthless streak, and he, he showed it, and we, it was pretty unpleasant, I have to say. Um, I did see him the next time I saw him was actually in Innsbruck at the World Championship uh, a couple of years ago, and he saw me and came and gave me a hug, which uh, was, you know, like not not a very warm hug, but a kind of, you know, let's let let's bury the hatchet about that exchange we had in uh, 2011. So that was. Uh, that was nice, but I've definitely seen that side to him. So I did, my ears did um, sort yeah. of prick up when I heard when I heard that comment. <laughs> oh, interesting, interesting. Well, I think we've probably rambled along enough here. I do want to make mention about the merchandise, the Life in Peloton merchandise. It's still up there on the Etsy store. There's some new stuff there, but I have to say a shout out to everyone who has been very, very patient. It's been really long delivery time. To certain countries are getting it. I know Australia hasn't been going in there because. Because of the pandemic, they've just sort of blocked the border out of Australia. I don't know the exact in and outs, but all I want to say is thanks, guys, for being patient. It is on its way. I can't I can't give you a date, but I think the borders are going to open up soon. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have way too much merch to wear. And everyone's going to be swimming in merchandise. So it's going to be a great time then. But thank you very much for hanging in there. And guys, thanks very much for listening. Rich, great to have you here talking with the episode. I hope I can have you on again. Thanks, Mitch. I hope so too. And I look forward to putting the episode out in two weeks' time. Hang in for a talking luft in a week's time. It's with Paul DeGator. It's a bit of a different talking luft. He's got some interesting opinions about caps, about luft. And in two weeks' time, I'm going to try and get that right, uh, team manager on. So hang in there, guys. Cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.